Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim. I'm a member here. Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Tim. I just wanted to introduce Dan Allen, who's going to be bringing the word for us today from Crossway Church here in Milwaukee. And I just want to say we're super thankful for you, Dan. Thank you so much for uh, kind of last minute preparing a sermon for us. Really appreciate it. You want to come up? I'll pray for you. Thanks for covering for Danny in this way. Thank you, God, for our brother. Thank you so much for preparing um, in his heart today's sermon. And I just ask that you would soften our own hearts to receive um, his re-presentation of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're a lively bunch here. Then. <laughs> All right. I'm going to put my timer on here. It's a, it's a great honor to be here. Uh, I, I, for, for whatever reason, I enjoy Sundays like this. It's a unique circumstance. But one thing we can know is that Jesus Christ is on his throne. Like that, we don't have to question. We don't know what next Sunday is going to look like. But we know he'll be on his throne next week. And that's a glorious thing. When I got the text uh, this week that uh, Danny was going to be out and he was looking for someone, uh, I was thrilled that I was not lined up to preach this Sunday because I, I enjoyed my time here, so it's a great blessing to be here. Uh, this sermon, actually, I wrote a year and a couple months prior because uh, the other pastor was lined up to preach at our church. Uh, this was back in November of 2020, and uh, I got a call on Saturday morning that he was out sick. So I spent the day at Starbucks writing that one. So I thought, this, this is perfect. It's a fill-in, a uh, uh, quick done, and we'll do it again today. Um, the, that little phrase, if only, so natural to us, but it can be like poison in your soul. If only. If only the relationship was better I could be satisfied. 
if only my children obeyed me a little bit more, I would be okay. If only he would stop doing this. If only she would start doing this. If only my boss would do this. If only my job was set up this way. And on and on and on it goes. So natural to us. You've probably said that subconsciously in your soul hundreds of times in your lifetime. And if we're not careful, it will destroy us. It will be like that. Remember, some of you might remember that old breakout game from Atari. Remember, some of you guys are old enough to play that. Had this little controller like that, and you hit the ball in the corner, hit the ball in the corner, hit the ball in the corner. There's an opening up there, and then the ball gets up, and it goes... Now, in the game, that's good, because it's destroying everything. But if that little phrase goes in your soul, if only, it will, it will act like that on you. It will tear you apart. The passage that we're going to look at today is meant to be one piece of the medicine for us to fight against that little phrase. How do we find true, true contentment? We don't have enough time to cover that whole section. Uh, We'll cover just the the first paragraph. We have two little couplets going on. Um, But I I think actually in our passage here, we have uh, one of the most famous... uh, misquoted passages of Scripture there in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, Let me give you a quick little tip. If you ever want to help people read their Bible, uh, this would be the number one tip I would give. If somebody said, help me read my Bible, and I had one hour with them, period, that's all I had, the simple tip would be this. Never read a Bible first. I get that phrase from Greg Kolkul. He runs a a politician apologetics ministry out in California. Never read a Bible verse, meaning you never should read one single verse and think that you understand what, it, what you think it understand, or understand what it means uh, because it gains meaning from everything around it. This is how communication works, right? Uh, take, for example, the word bank. What's, what's the word bank mean? Yeah, there you go. It could be a basketball shot. Place where you store money. There'll be some outside soon. Snowbank, right? Or you could say a pool shot, similar to the bank shot. Yeah, don't bank your life on it. Or you might say you can bank on it. Same, same idea. Or the river bank. Now, what's that, 10 seconds, 12 seconds? We have six, seven ideas for what the word bank means. The word bank only has meaning in, like, as we're talking as other things are surrounded around it. So if I said meet me at the bank today, now, I've narrowed it a little bit because it's not this uh, you-can-bank-on-it idea. It's not a bank shot. We're talking about a place here. Now, let's say I said, uh, meet me at the bank today. I got paid. You, you might think I'm talking about a, a financial institution, but if I said, meet me at the bank today. I got paid. I'll stop and pick up the worms. We'll have a great catch. You say, oh, well, now I know what you're talking about. It's the river bank. You see, the word bank only gains true meaning as other words surround it, and that's the way we should read our Bibles. Uh, so I just want to kind of walk through the, the, the claim of this text. We're really going to focus on the first paragraph, uh, the claim of that paragraph, and then we're going to reflect on it. So here we'll start on verse 10. I, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
So let's first orient with uh, who, who our author is and who our audience is. Uh, our author uh, is the Apostle Paul. We learn early on in the, the, the book that he's in prison. Uh, we learn that in chapter 1. Uh, our audience is the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippi is a city in Macedonia. Uh, Paul, actually, if, if you read in Acts 6 or Acts 16, he, uh, he, he was going through the, the city of Philippi, and he, he ran into someone, you might remember, uh, her name is Lydia, the first convert to the faith, uh, a seller of purple linens and such, first convert. And then you remember in that scene, Acts 16, uh, Paul gets thrown into prison, and we know that scene known as the Philippian jailer. Remember, there's that great earthquake, and all the shackles of all the prisoners come off, and the, the prison, prisoner guard uh, is about to kill himself, you remember? Paul says, no, don't do that. Like, we're all here. And he is converted, uh, him and his household. Now, Paul was there for a time, and he left the city. And as Paul traveled, uh, he would go in and out of that city or send people uh, to and fro uh, through Philippi. And they were great partners in the gospel. There you see it in verse uh, 15 even, where he says, except you only, uh, or no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only, or that's the way he opens up the book, chapter 1, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. Uh, this church in Philippi and Paul had a very strong partnership. Now, in this scene, what's going on in this letter, uh, Paul is sending back someone his name is Epaphroditus, and actually Epaphroditus shows up in verse 18 here. I have received full payment and more and well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Chapter 2, we're first introduced to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was from Philippi. For whatever reason, uh, they had lost contact with Paul, it sounds like, and from verse 10, you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you had concern but had no opportunity. They must have lost contact with him, right? I mean, this is before the age of cell phones, right? Uh, this, this is hard to connect with people, as, especially as Paul is being thrown into prison and such. They found out where Paul was. He's in prison, presumably in Rome at this point. They take Epaphroditus, and they give him a satchel of money. Take this to the apostle Paul, because he's in prison. In those days, depending on what prison you're in, sometimes the prisoner has to supply all his own goods. You know, in prisons here in America, we su supply prisoners with food and housing and all that, right? That we pay for that. Well, in those days, if you're a prisoner, you, you're locked up here. If you want to eat, that's got to come from the outside. Your family, your friends, your buddies, they, they have to provide that for you because we're not, we're not giving you that. You're in prison. So the church in Philippi sends Epaphroditus with all this um, supplies for Paul to care for him. And Paul now uh, is sending Epaphroditus back. He talks about in chapter 2 that Epaphroditus almost died uh, in the trip and such, and Epaphroditus is now ready. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with this letter. So Epaphroditus is carrying the letter all the way back home. The church is now gathered in the house. They're reading this, and this is the very end of the letter, and he's simply trying to say thank you in the very end of the letter. Right? That's how kind of the, the tone of verse 10, you've revived your concern for me. Verse 14, it was kind of you. It was so kind of you to share in my trouble. You heard I was in prison and you cared for me. Thank you. Thank you for that. This church is most likely a, a very poor church as well. Uh, the, the city of Philippi was, was wealthy. 
but the church seems to not have been. Uh, we learn in uh, chapter 1 that they're starting to undergo persecution just the same as Paul is. And if you turn back to 2 Corinthians, we'll just see one thing. This is worth seeing, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 8. I think there's good reason to think that he's taught uh, that Paul is talking about the church in Philippi here. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Uh, Paul is writing in Corinthians to a very wealthy church that is a little bit uh, stingy. Verse one of chapter eight. He says, "We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia." Now remember, Philippi is in Macedonia. That's what Paul talks about in our setting. No church uh, entered in a partnership with me from Macedonia, except you only. You're the only ones that did that. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 8. Let me tell you about the grace of God that was given among those churches from Macedonia. Why? Verse 2. Because in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, you see those both in the same sentence? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part because they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See what he says here. He says, look, I want to tell you about God's grace. There's this church or these churches in Macedonia who are poor, extreme poverty, They hardly have enough food for themselves. And you want to know what the grace of God was? Not giving them more food. It wasn't getting them out of their hard situation. The grace of God to them, we see because they begged us to give more. They didn't even have anything to give, but they begged us to be part of that. That's the grace of God, he says. It's the exact opposite of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, mind you. This is the grace of God is demonstrated not in having wealth, but giving it away and having find finding great joy in doing that, even if you're impoverished. This is the church in Philippi. This is this is the church that, that Paul loves this church. Paul is delighted to send Epaphroditus back to them. And he's saying uh, thank you in our passage here of chapter four in Philippians. If you turn back there, thank you for the gift. Thank you. It was so kind of you. Now, what he does next is quite interesting. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Or verse 17, after he's said it was kind of you to share in my trouble, even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. Sort of like uh, we were just coming out of Christmas, right? I mean, maybe if you, your grandmother gave you a, a gift and it was really nice, and you said, oh, Grandma, this is so nice. Not that I need it. I mean, you'd be, it's, it's sort of a, a different statement, right? Now, why is he saying that? I think because he's, he's wanting to teach them something here uh, in, in the following phrases after verse 11, not that I'm seeking, speaking of being in need. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. It was, it was kind of you to send the gift. But he's going to guard, he's going to guard the church from something here as we, as we go forward. I'm not speaking of being in need. Why? Because I've learned something. 
in verse 11, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment. How, how, how would you define that phrase, that, that word, contentment? What does it mean to be content? It's this idea of like a, a rest in your soul, yeah? A, a satisfaction, a, a calmness deep within, right? I, I'm okay. I'm satisfied. Paul says that he's learned to be content. And then if you notice what he did, uh, three times he goes to the, the extremes. He says the negative and the positive. And he says positive and the negative and the positive and the negative. He says, look, I've learned in any in every situation, it doesn't matter if it's high or low, the pain or pleasure, that doesn't matter. I'm content in both of them. And I think what he's doing here is when he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, what he does not want that church to hear is that Paul is now doing well because of their gift. Paul, there's a danger here, right? Oh, we get it. Paul is doing well because we sent them that satchel of money. That's why he's doing well. Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm doing well. I'm content. But it's not because of that. That was good of you. That was kind of you. But it's not because of that. Because Paul has found true contentment outside of that. Contentment. Have you, do you think you've ever met anybody in your life that does not want contentment? You wake up every single day, and that's what you're searching for. I, I want my soul to be restful. Now, let me ask you, do you think, as you look around the world, you find people, people find contentment more when they're in the, uh, in the pain or the pleasure, as Paul puts these situations, the abundance and need? I mean, you, you, uh, you may have heard of J.D. Rockefeller, uh, mid-1800s to mid-1900s, one of the richest people alive like during his time. Historically, it's said that, that someone at once asked him, how much money is enough? And his answer, a little more. Sort of like one more dollar. Tom Brady, 2005, he's either 27, 28 at this time, won three Super Bowls at this point. How many has he won now? Six, seven or something? Crazy. At this time, it was three. That was amazing. He's won three Super Bowls. He goes on, I think it was 60 minutes. The, the, the interviewer asked him, okay, you know, Tom, you, you've won three Super Bowls. I mean, you, you could do anything. You've achieved your dreams. I mean, think of how many times as a young boy you've, you've longed to be at this place. You've made it three times over. 
which of the rings is your favorite? It was what the uh, interview asked him. And his answer? The next one. You see, you see that? All those years, all the practicing, all the times in the, in the backyard throwing the pretend Super Bowl pass, finally to get there, and he does it three times, and he needs one more. What do we call that but a lack of contentment? We see this everywhere. And we see it in our own souls. Is, is that not why sometimes I run to the pantry? I, I know a, a handful of almonds and raisins or whatever it is that you go for for chips or whatever it is. I know it's not going to satisfy me, but I think for one moment it will. For two minutes, please, something. Or why do I, when I have 15 minutes, why do I have to run to Facebook real quick? Why, why, is, how, why do I think that that's going to help me get through the next 10 minutes? Or, or, or why do we sit in this anxious of heart or anxious of soul what the next two weeks are going to be like? Or am I going to be healthy five years down the road? Or what's going to happen in my family? Or what we joke around is say, oh, I'm just hangry. Oh, really? Is that all it is? We're, we are people that thirst for contentment. That's the way we were made. We just look for it in all the wrong places. That's our problem. We're trying to find it in the up, the up times, right? It's the pleasure times. And we think it's the painful times that keeps us away from contentment. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's neither of those. And here's where verse 13 comes in. If you know all that background, verse 13 then makes sense. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, it's not saying, uh, you know, many people will use this verse and say, oh, I, I can have a good marriage through Jesus. I can get a good job through Jesus. I can get off addiction through Jesus. I, I worked at the mission years ago, and that was, this was a very common um, verse to quote there. That's not what Paul is talking about. No, it's true. Jesus can help you have a good marriage. But this passage is, is, more has the flavor. Look, if your marriage stinks, you, as a person, can still be content. Because you can't, you're not supposed to be trying to find your contentment in your marriage. Your contentment is in Christ. Isn't that what he says? I can do all things through him. Not in this because of the circumstance, not because of good, good marriage. It's, it says not to say I can find a good job through Jesus. It could say it's, he says, yeah, fine, Jesus, you, you can be content in a good job, and if your job is terrible, you can still have true contentment. So I would state the claim this way: that Paul is trying to teach them that true contentment is possible in every circumstance in Christ. True contentment is possible, whether it be pain or pleasure, through Christ. True contentment is possible. 
What do, you, what do you think about when you hear that? I think, you know, I think when I hear that, I th- part, of, part of me says, I, I want that. I, I, I want to I believe that. T- tell that to me again. True, true contentment is, I need to hear that. Give me that. Part of me says, when I, when I hear kind of this sort of uh, flavor of the text, I say, I don't want that. It's not that I don't want the contentment. I don't want the contentment the way that Paul's talking about it. Because Paul's saying, no, 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 I'm telling you to find contentment not in circumstances. That means you can go through the hardest things. I want to escape those things. And honestly, much of me is pretty cynical when I hear this. I think, come on, Paul, that's a little simplistic. Really? I mean, you can always be content. Do you know some of the things I face in life? Like, really? Come on, that's, that's a little bit, come on. Uh, one thing to notice here, and hopefully you've picked it up, is that true contentment, then, is possible in every circumstance. It's not dependent on the circumstance itself. So one, one of the ways we do this actually in our culture is wedding vows. You've said these yourself or said something like this or you've been at a wedding where two people look at each other and they say, I will love you, what is it, in sickness and in health, right? For richer or for poorer, right? What, what that person is trying to communicate to that person at that time is to say, my love for you is not going to be contingent on these outside factors. Whether, whether there's sickness or health in our home or, or, or wealth or no wealth, that, that's not going to, my love is not contingent on that. I'm going to give you my love no matter what. It's not dependent upon these circumstances. And that's what Paul is saying here, that, that he's offering to God's people, there's a contentment that is possible that is not dependent on those things. Now, brothers and sisters, that is great news. That is great news because you do not have to live long to know that the life goes like this the whole time. You're never going to reach a state where life just stays up here. That's not going to happen. We are in a fallen world, and you are a fallen being, and you live with fallen people. Life goes like this. And if, if this is true, if this claim is true, that there is a contentment that can be had that is like this, That is glorious news. True contentment is possible in every circumstance. Or you might say it like this, true contentment is possible in every circumstance. What we want to do sometimes is say true contentment is possible because of circumstance. As if circumstance can produce contentment for us. I think one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is to ask ourselves, do I know how I look to the world to try to produce contentment in me? It's not a matter of whether or not you do. You do. It's just, do you know how? I try to find contentment in my reputation. I want people to think well of me. Now, I don't think about that in every category. 
I don't care about fashion. I've worn the same clothes since I was in high school. And I've never, I don't care, right? And I, you can look at me, that's probably why you're laughing. We can tell, Dan, you don't care about fashion. I don't care about that. But what I do care about is I want people to think that I'm a good pastor. I've had people frustrated with me. That's crushing to me. I want people to know, or I want my wife to know, uh, and others to think that I'm a good husband. That's, in, that's important to me. But there are times when I'm not the nicest husband. I want people to think well of me in the softball world. Some of you know I run a, a softball YouTube channel. I want people to, to think that I hit the ball well and that I, like, look at him. Let's, let's watch him hit. I want people to come up to me after the service and say, that sermon was amazing. Now, when that doesn't happen, the sick part of me, I feel lousy. People didn't compliment me today. What am I going to do? Should I even do this stuff anymore? That's sick, right? I mean, I'm 43 years old. I hit a weak ground ball at softball, and my first thought, if my kids are there, is that my kids are probably embarrassed about me. Like, they're, they're probably not even going to want people to know that I'm their dad. Now, I'm not kidding about that. That's real. Like, that's one of my first thoughts. A grown man still doing that. Like, this is what we do. We look to circumstances to try to produce contentment, and it's exhausting. You chase this constantly. And it will never, ever happen. Three Super Bowls, it's not going to happen. How much money is enough? It's not going to happen. And one of the greatest things that we can realize is to say, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Those things can't do it, and I'm going to stop chasing it. You ever, uh, they don't do this anymore, but some of you are maybe old enough that uh, the dog races would be on in the middle of the night. Remember that? Here comes Barney, and they're off. Anybody ever watch those? All right, we got a guy in the back. Thank you. Well, yeah, this this uh, this bunny. He was like a. He was called Barney, and it's like a stuffed bunny on this pole, and that's how they get the dogs to run around the track, right? Here comes Barney, and they're off, and the dogs take off, and every day or every time they go to the track, they chase that same bunny, and they never catch it. And you know one of the good things that would happen is if we actually caught it sometimes to realize, like, I've been chasing this. This is never going to work. But even the problem with that is sometimes we catch it and we just think, oh, no, it wasn't that. It was the next thing. And so we do this thing, right? It's like, okay, finally, when I, when I, when I, when I finally graduate college, I'll get the career that I've been working for. Then I'll be happy. Oh, wait, okay, this isn't happening. But I'm going to get married. And when I get married, then I'll be, that, that, that will fix it. Oh, okay, this isn't working. Um, when we have kids, uh, the, the kids are going to really satisfy. Oh, when the, when the kids like, grow up and then we can play games together. Oh, that will do it. Oh, when our, when our kids graduate, it, it just goes on and on and on and on. And we're like the, the dogs chasing that bunny. And it never works. Would that God helps us to see where we chase contentment in the world so we can see that, that that can never produce the contentment we long for. So what do we do? I, I, I don't think Paul would tell us, though, here, okay, 
Here's what you do, church. I want you to go home and pursue contentment today. Go do it. Because that won't work either. You've been trying that. I think his goal here is to not even seek contentment itself, but to pursue Christ himself. And the contentment is a byproduct. It's a result of actually finding our satisfaction in Christ alone so that then when we interact with the world, we are content. Or you might look at it this way. If I, if I were to say, like, my, my wife's name is Danica, so Dan and Danica. Um, if, I, if I were to try to, like, tell myself, I want to have fuzzies in my gut for my wife, right? I don't want to just wake up one morning and go, okay, gut, feel fuzzies towards Danica. Like, that, that's not going to work, right? So what do we do? I, I, maybe I, I write her a card. I maybe do some projects for her. I write her a poem or something, right? I'm, I'm doing things for her, towards her, thinking about her, and what happens? This inner fuzzy starts happening, right? And it's this, it's, it's this idea here. It's, it's actually seeing Christ, looking to Christ, finding our hope and joy in Christ, and we actually experience something deeper, a deeper satisfaction. So that when earlier in the, in the book, you're, you'll remember the scene if you've ever, ever read the book, where Paul's trying, like almost arguing with himself, like, is it better to die or to live? I can't, I can't, I can't decide. Uh, and then he starts having this dialogue. He's, well, to die is by far better because then I'm with Christ, but to live is more necessary on your account, and to, to live is Christ. Um, I can't decide. I think I'll stay here, though, because you'll, you'll need me, right? And what he, what he does there, if you stop and kind of, like, see what he's doing, he says, look, I have Christ no matter what. If I live here, Christ is with me, and I'm ministering Christ and in Christ's power. So I'm with Christ. If I die, I'm, I'm with Christ even closer. So that's actually better. But here I have Christ, so I guess if I have Christ, it doesn't matter. You see what he's doing? Therefore, if I have Christ, throw anything at me. I'm fine. Because Christ is where I actually find my satisfaction. Now, there's one word here you have to see in verse 11. And he says, for I have learned it. I wish I was showed up today with, uh, we could call it the contentment-o-matic. And you're good. Maybe you need a booster every couple months or something. But for the most part, I got you. I can't do that. Right? This is something learned, and specifically, mostly, it's learned in the trenches. It's learned through those hard, hard times of life. And sometimes that's the good things that God does is strip us of all the things that we've been chasing, right? So that we can actually see it's only in Christ where we can find true contentment. But this, this stuff is learned in the trenches. And who was the most content person ever to have lived? Was it not Christ himself? But one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is actually as we watch Christ wrestle in the garden. As he, he asks the Father, take this cup from me. If you can take it, take it. Yet not my will, but yours be done as he's sweating uh, blood, wrestling, and yet fully content. So sometimes what we don't want to do is think contentment is like, oh, I'm always happy, I'm always fine. There, there can be a wrestling, there's a battle going on. Jesus in the garden is still content, even though it's battle. 
right? Because he's wrestling with real things, but, as Hebrews talks us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, if we can tap into this and actually seek Christ alone and find our hope and satisfaction in him alone, we will find a contentment that is absolutely untouchable from the world. Would that not be such a great gift, such a great joy to experience? You would be, you might think of it as the, those uh, survival condos. Perhaps you've heard of these, yeah? Uh, or a doomsday condo. Uh, there's, there's several of these, uh, more and more actually as the, the years go on, and I'm sure the pandemic has uh, even made it more uh, of a great idea for some people. But uh, what happened? Uh, one of these, uh, it's... Uh, Somewhere in Kansas, undisclosed place, they won't say where it is, uh, the U.S. military uh, during the Cold War had these missile silos that they developed, and they were left vacant at some point. Uh, somebody purchased one of these uh, and built these survival condos in them. It's enough for 75 people to live for five years. And in this survival condo, it's all underground, 15 stories down, 12 levels, uh, they have these condos, $3 million a piece, so if you're interested. <laughs> now, in the condos, they have a library, they have a grocery store, they have a dentistry, they even have a jail, because, you know, people are still going to be people. There's a water park, uh, kids go to school, people have jobs, because they say you got to keep life as normal as possible. The whole purpose of this thing is that it can withstand a direct nuclear bomb and be totally fine under the surface. Whether it's nice and sunny up there on Earth or total disaster, underneath they're fine. Now that would be pretty cool to experience, right? And we get to experience something like that, but even greater, I would say, because we can be people that live in a world that is going crazy but inside, inside we have true life. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Brothers and sisters, the gospel offers us joy that is untouchable from the earth. And we ought not hear this, uh, this passage as something scolding us. You should be content, Christian, and you're not. This is promise. This is invitation. Brothers and sisters, come. Come to Christ. Come to the one who laid his life down for you to bring you to the Father. To the Father who says that I, I, I hold you in my hand. To the, the good shepherd who says, I know my sheep and nothing will take them out of my hand. And he will care for us forever. This is a great promise. May we rejoice in it and grip to it. Let us pray together. God, we come as people who, uh, we confess, we, we look to all sorts of things for contentment. And I ask, God, that you would awaken all of us to see more clearly how we look to the world and to, to give us that. We look to spouses, we look to kids, we look to jobs, uh, all sorts of things, retirement accounts, to provide us that security and soul that we long for. And this morning, God, we, we want to repent. We want to turn from those things. Many of those things are good gifts from you, and we've turned them into something that we are looking for hope and joy from. And God, we turn from that today. 
We ask, God, that you give us eyes to see that you alone can satisfy us. You alone can be the rock within us. And I ask, God, that you give us a taste once again of the gospel and that we would find deep joy, deep contentment, stability in this unstable world. For your sake and for our good, in Christ's name, amen.